Hello all, warmest welcomes, and you proper need them at the moment because it's gone Baltic again outside, hasn't it? To the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your premier North Wales one-person true crime podcast that seeks out to recount to you those tales that you may not be familiar with, the often forgotten and obscure stories of dark deeds from all across the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul. You guys are you guys, of course. It's great having you here joining me once again, and I hope that as you do so, that each of you and yours is all good and you're all well. So this week then, we're going to be finishing a family's fight, and I'll be discussing each part of it, plus a lonely death on Gun Hill, the torso in the tank, and the Ripper in the Making episodes on the first Patreon-exclusive livestream video, which I'm hoping to get done sometime in the week following this episode being out. And we shall get to it shortly, as soon as I'm done with my usual gubbins that I always begin with, so I feel dolphin smooth easing into the narrative. Thanks out this week to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time going out to Ginger and Charm, Eric Woodson, Gina GG, Dawn Wilcox, Steve Wallace, and Leslie Mayo and Ian Zarkon, who've become annual Patreon supporters. You rule, kind folk, thank you so much, and I hope that you've found and devoured the unreleased bonus episodes that you've now gotten access to as supporters. I'll be researching and writing bonus episode number 34 in this next week coming, so that'll be out just before the end of the month. If you want to join these guys in supporting the show, and get yourself listening to tales such as Ripper in the Making, Angel from Hell, or Death of a Brighton Schoolboy, then you're more likely to beat John Wick in a scrap than struggle to do so, it's so simple, and it costs less than a month than you've probably got stuffed down the back of your sofa in change. Unless you're some sort of neat freak serial killer type, you know, who always tidies up. Just head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site, it's got the same show logo and all of that, or use the ever-present show notes link, and quicker than Homer Simpson grows stubble, you could be hearing these tales and more, you may even have some enthusiast stuff winging its way to you. Once again, I'm also plugging that I'll be in attendance at CrimeCon UK over the weekend of the 12th and the 13th of June 2021 down in London, alongside some of your favourite shows such as UK True Crime, Murder Mile, They Walk Among Us and Lady Justice. I do believe as well there's talk of a panel discussion with a few of us also. And I'd absolutely love to say hi and catch up with some of you folks there at the event. Who knows, perhaps even we'll shoot the breeze over a pint afterwards. There are a limited number of early bird tickets on sale now, so if you head over to crimecon.co.uk, then you'll be able to get yourself a whopping 10% discount off the cost of your purchase if you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST on the order page. How ace is that? Now I also have a pair of weekend tickets that I'll be giving away for a listener when we have a bit of a competition here on the show come Christmas time, so watch this space for details of that. But before Christmas, before Halloween, before even bloody Apple Day though, October the 21st for your calendars pot pickers, we've got a story arc to complete here on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, A Family's Fight. Throughout the last three episodes of the show, we've come to hear the tragic, touching and remarkable story of the Siddons family from the UK city of Derby in the county of Derbyshire. Now, if you haven't heard these episodes already, then you're better off starting at the beginning and who starts anything at part four or something as well. And it'll make much more sense 
or else you'll be more lost than I was when I watched Lost. Because what a shower of old cock that turned out to be as well, didn't it? If you are up to speed and ready to go, then you'll recall we've heard of the horrific murder of 16-year-old Lynn Siddons back in 1978, the arrest, trial and acquittal of a self-confessed killer, and the family's crusade to bring the person they, and everybody, was convinced was Lynn's actual killer to justice, when for as much support as they'd gathered from people in the street to as high up as members of parliament, The law and its enforcers seemed to be almost opposing them, such were the trials they faced. But this was a family who didn't know the meaning of give up, and their fight for justice for Lynn continued, however many roads ran into dead ends. To the Siddons family, there was only to be one outcome. Whatever it took, and however long it took to, Lynn's killer would account for the crime. So let's crack on and see how that unfolded. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. Plus there are also references within to derogatory racial terms that some listeners may find offensive. Now these are repeated here purely as we go all or nothing here on the show to do the tale justice. Therefore the said terms are used as they refer to events included in the episode as part of the story context. And are categorically not included to cause offence. They're also categorically not the views of myself or the show also. So discretion is advised whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we wrap up the tale of a family's fight with part four of the story arc and justice for Lynn. So last time around we heard how the Siddons family made a powerful new ally in their quest for justice for Lynn investigative journalist Paul Foote and we also heard that after years of going down this legal trail and that one they were unable to afford a further shot at doing so. So by 1987 enter a tough legal eagle named Jane Dayton sympathetic to the family's fight and who they soon had in their corner. In fact it was Jane who had come up with a possible next route for the family to take If a criminal prosecution for Michael Brooks seemed about as likely as getting a pint here in the UK now at ten past ten of an evening, then how about what would be a legal first? Raising a civil prosecution for damages against Michael and Roy Brooks over the death of Lynn. Now knowing it wouldn't be easy to do, and would be costly, but getting behind the idea faster than Generation Z becomes fashionably offended by absolutely anything, the Siddons family were on board and Jane Dayton got to work on the family's latest step. She made an application for legal aid for the family to cover their legal costs, her fees and the expense of preparing the case, and twice Flo and Gail had to travel down from Derby to attend meetings with a law society in London who would ultimately decide as to whether legal aid was being awarded in view of their application. The family gathered as much powerful support as they could, including the backing of the then MP for Derby North, Greg Knight, and a few days later, after being given the unofficial nod of approval from a sympathetic lawyer at the Law Society to save the family waiting on tenterhooks, written confirmation of their legal aid came in the post. So game on but it came at a price. 
The money that the state would provide to assist them in raising their civil case would not cover the entire costs, and it left a shortfall that the Siddons family would have to make up the balance of themselves, some £2,000. As usual, the family pulled together, and with their help and from increased hours at her evening cleaning job, Flo was able to pay the first instalment of this off, some £500. But the other £1,500 seemed out of reach. That was a bit of a sizeable amount back in 1987. So Flo, ever a woman of action, turned to a book of names and got in touch with a newspaper friend who agreed that an appeal would be publicised in the local Derby press for help for the family to meet the legal bill required. Now this appeal did not ask directly for money from people. The proud Flo wouldn't allow that. It rather more asked for the support of functions designed to raise funds for the costs, assistance with sponsored events to fundraise, that kind of thing. And the people of Derby responded en masse. Scores of people, long touched by the family's fight, began donating to the cause, from an elderly lady giving her last £5 to an anonymous envelope complete with well-wishing note that they received containing £100. And alongside these, several successful fundraising events were organised. There was a very successful bring and buy sale, numerous raffles, and a sponsored 20-mile walk from Derby to Matlock performed by dozens of volunteers that even the then 73-year-old Flo herself took part in, managing to complete 8 miles of it before she had to stop due to exhaustion. Now there were even more bizarre and offbeat fundraisers, for example, three friends of Lynn's half-brother Gary on April Fool's Day 1987 in their local pub, The Silver Ghost in Alverston, ate a meal of daffodil heads, raw eggs, beer and spirits before doing 20 press-ups each. It'll be on the menu at your local spoons soon, that will. Now it sounds gopping that, doesn't it? But however bizarre it was, it still raised £350 for the cause. Within three weeks of the appeal being published, much more than the £1,500 needed had been raised. Flo commented at the time, it's wonderful. Everyone has been so helpful. Lynn was murdered nine years ago. It's a long time for people to remember. But this response shows people have not forgotten. This proves the people of Derby are behind us. Indeed it does, eh? So a writ was now issued by Jane Dayton on behalf of Galen Flo, claiming damages from Michael and Roy Brooks. The writ set out the full horror of the events of that day in 1978, leading up to the attack on Lynn, and in part, reads as follows. Michael Brooks then attacked the deceased from behind and held her around the neck. They both then variously stabbed the deceased using a carving knife and a sheath knife. Michael then attempted to asphyxiate the deceased by compressing her neck, pushing soil into her mouth, and pressing her face into a pool of water. He dragged the body into undergrowth and left her. There were in excess of 40 knife wounds to her body together with other injuries. The deceased suffered agonising pain and terror before she finally lost consciousness and died. It is Mrs Halford's case that this was a brutal and sexually perverted murder committed at the instigation of Michael Brooks. Now the bill for damages was set out as follows. 
to causing the victim agonising pain and terror before she lost consciousness and died, cost unknown. Lost income due to death. Deceased was due to start work as a meatpacker for the Central Midlands Co-op at a gross wage of £40 per week. The said wages would have increased in stages to a 1986 level of £80.75 a week. Cost unknown. Funeral expenses, £177.85. Tombstone, £13.82. A gross affront to the physical integrity and dignity of an innocent young girl of 16. Aggravated and exemplary damages. Damages under the Law Reform Act 1934. Interest under Section 35A of the Supreme Court Act 1981. But these things don't just happen the following day, do they? It took a further two years for the case to come to court. And in a tale that's been up and down more than Ken Barlow's underthrashers, there was still much more to come. When the case finally did come before the courts, it was the second time in her family's memory that they'd seen Flo Siddons cry, following being told that she couldn't have a last look at her beloved granddaughter at the funeral home 11 years before. The date was Wednesday the 22nd of November 1989, where at a hearing at Manchester's High Court, Mr Justice Sheeman barred the Siddons family's claim for damages against Roy and Michael Brooks. The tears streamed down Flo's face and she proper sobbed at hearing something that seemed so final. The reason? Judge Sheeman had ruled that, aside from the action for damages being started five and a half years beyond the three-year limit from the event any such claim would normally have to begin within, he claimed the case was also I quote, Financially pointless. The problems here arise from the probability that the defendants will not have sufficient assets to meet any judgments which might be given against them. It was, as you can imagine, a massive blow, and although it knocked them down somewhat, the Siddons family didn't stay beaten at all. They'd come too far for that. So they decided, upon the advice of their barrister, the late Anthony Scrivener QC, to appeal Judge Sheeman's decision, Mr Scrivener being of the opinion that there were grounds to do so. A date was set for the appeal to be heard in November 1990, which resulted in another year's wait for the family and several trips down to London over the period to meet with legal counsel preparing the case. But on the 26th of November 1990, Flo and Gale were in the High Court in London to hear the decision of the legal panel who'd heard their appeal. The Master of the Rolls, Lord Donaldson, Lord Justice Norse and Lord Justice Russell, who told them, The appeal will be allowed. Now what a thing to hear that must have been, eh? It meant to the Siddons family that the evidence they had had been studied and it had been found that Michael Brooks Roy Brooks, or both of them, had killed Lynn. Indeed, part of Lord Justice Russell's written judgment reads, There can be no doubt that everyone concerned in the case must have understood that one or the other or both of the defendants had been responsible for the attack on the girl that caused her death. No other person can conceivably be involved. Now, as you can imagine, the family were over the moon with this ruling. 
but they were still somewhat guarded. They had had their hopes built up before several times over the years, only for negligence and judgments to have gone against them, but it was a hell of a way to have come. Michael and Roy Brooks did seek leave to appeal the decision of the appeal court as far up as the House of Lords, but this was refused. They would have to face the writ in civil court and attempt to disprove it. It was over a nine-day hearing in July 1991 that Courtroom 22 at London's Royal Courts of Justice heard the case of Halford v Michael and Fitzroy Brooks, to give it its full title, presided over by Mr Justice Rougier. As we said, it was making legal history. It was the first civil case in which damages were being claimed for a murder which no one had been convicted for, and although the action was for battery, the judge and I like him already, I really do, grabbed the bull by the balls and told the court, there's no point in mincing words, the effect of this action is to accuse the defendants of murder. Despite an argument from Derbyshire police that all statements, exhibits, the entire case file was part of an active investigation, yeah right, and that by handing them over to the court it may prejudice any future prosecution, this was overruled and the hearing got underway. Michael Brooks did not attend court even though he was a co-defendant. Roy Brooks didn't want to either but even though the action was against him he'd been subpoenaed to attend as a witness for the Siddonses and so had to attend. In the witness box the now 28 year old married Roy made much more of an impression than he had 13 years previously being smartly turned out and given evidence clearly and non-hesitatingly. The court heard how since his arrest in 1978 until the moment he was released from care of the pastures two years later, Roy Brooks had given no less than five different accounts of the events of the day of Lynn Siddons' murder. The initial lie about Lynn merely vanishing after him coming out of the woods, the account he'd given after 10 minutes alone with his stepfather at the police station, in which he now claimed he alone had killed Lynn, and the account he gave to his psychologist in Leicester Prison, and which he'd stuck to at his 1978 trial. But the court heard that after his acquittal, when he was sent to the Pastures Hospital, a social worker there, Keith Sherwood, had taken him to Cotton Lane Police Station for a meeting with the officer who'd led the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Jim Reddington. On this occasion, the 14th of December 1978, Roy had reverted back to the second account that he'd told, that he had acted in the murder alone, and by the time of the 1991 hearing, he'd changed his story once again, and claimed once again that the version he'd told at his trial was the true version. Now he claimed the reason he changed his story on the occasion in December 1978, which had been made in part without the presence of his solicitor, was that he simply wanted to go home. Under questioning from his own counsel, Adrian Whitfield QC, Roy told the court that Detective Superintendent Reddington had explained to him that as he'd been acquitted, I quote, no matter what happened, you could not be tried again, and that he was trying to find out the truth. Roy replied, When I went into the room, the officer told me that if I said the first statement was true and I was going to take all the blame, it would be over and done with. We can get it all sorted out and you can go home straight away and nothing more would be heard. 
He said that he'd agreed to this because he hadn't wanted to be in care, desperately unhappy at being away from his mum and sister, admitting, I just understood I could go home straight away and nothing more would be heard. It was suggested by both Dr Tom Dorman, the psychiatrist whose care Roy had been under at the time, and Keith Sherwood, who both appeared to give evidence at the hearing, that this had been suggested to Roy in a bid to get the case closed in the face of mounting public pressure to do so. Jim Reddington refuted this when he was called as a witness, claiming that he was sure that the 1978 investigation had been conducted as well as it could possibly have been. However, he did confirm under questioning from Mr Scrivener that the garden at number 27 Carlisle Street had not been dug up at the time of the investigation, which would have produced the knife and the burned clothing, and that Lynn's body had been moved from the scene before a full forensic examination could take place with it in situ. Two examples which showed the court that the investigation hadn't been it had actually been rushed and piss poor, as we've heard, and I'm sure you're of the opinion of. Continuing his evidence, Roy then described to the court his part in the murder, referring to the knife. I think I stuck it in about six times. It was like I wasn't there, like I was looking at myself doing it. It was an ever so scary feeling. Referring to Michael Brooks's actions, he continued, I sat down shaking and feeling sick as he knelt by her body and stuck the knife in hard lots of times. I remember him shouting at me that she wouldn't die. I remember my dad trying to push soil into her mouth with one hand and the other hand was at the back of her neck. I remember him jumping on her head with his foot. Flo and Gail sat in the front of the court, couldn't look at Roy while he was giving this graphic account. Several of Lynn's cousins, in court to give the family support and who had not heard the grisly details before, had to leave courtroom 22 in tears following hearing this. Roy then told the court of how his stepfather had an obsession with Jack the Ripper, who he wanted to emulate and surpass in victims, and how he would express his wish to get every woman they passed. Get meaning stab and mutilate with a knife. Now, whilst this was reserved up until April 1978, as far as Roy knew, to merely being of pictures of women, a blue and yellow stuffed toy dolphin also used to regularly cop it from Brooks's knife. The toy, complete with visual stab marks and slashes, was produced as an exhibit in court. Following Dr Alan Usher giving evidence about his examination of Lynn, detailing her injuries to the court and her cause of death as being consistent with the account Roy Brooks had given in his second statement, the one he told at his 1978 trial. Two further witnesses gave evidence to the court about Michael Brooks and his obsession with knives. Keith Hibbert, who as you remember had already given a statement, confirmed this under cross-examination and furthered how he'd known Brooks as a youth, testifying to his lifelong weird obsession with knives. He'd even once given Keith a carving knife and urged him to stab him with it, wanting to feel the sensation of a blade entering his body. And another witness, a man named Roland Cooper, whose daughter Edwina had briefly been Brooks's girlfriend way back in 1965, told the court how Brooks, when he called around to their house, would open magazines and catalogues, take out a knife, 
and stab and slash at scantily clad women in the underwear sections. Mr. Cooper said, While he was doing it, he used to mutter things. I could never decipher what the words were. When I spoke to him about it, he completely and utterly ignored me, as if he were in a world of his own, as though I'd never spoken. I wanted to put the man out the door, but my wife remonstrated. She said that if I did that, Edwina would meet him outside the home, and it would make them closer. Bloody way to impress your girlfriend's dad, eh? Fortunately, Edwina and boyfriend of the year Brooks split shortly afterwards. In his closing speech, Mr. Scrivener described Michael Brooks as, I quote, a knife freak who had killed Lynn for no other reason than perverted sexual enjoyment with Roy Brooks under his influence. That was the motive. Both of them had the opportunity to commit the murder. There was Roy Brooks's eyewitness account of Lynn's killing that the court had heard and the findings of pathologist Dr. Alan Usher pathological evidence that suggested strongly that more than one killer had been involved, which supported Roy's story he'd given both during the hearing and back in 1978. Apart from having a video to watch it happen, what more could you want? Mr Scrivener asked. Michael Brooks's counsel, Bernard Livesey QC, at his turn laid the murder solely at the feet of Roy Brooks submitting that Roy alone had committed the killing in a sexually aroused yet frustrated state, murdering Lynn in a frenzy when his drive to see naked flesh, as opposed to what he'd only seen in pornographic magazines, had boiled over into murderous action. He offered no reason for not calling Michael Brooks as a witness to give evidence on his own behalf, although remembering his piss-poor showing the last time he was called as a witness, 13 years before, it's probably better for him that he wasn't called, really. Now, no judgment was given at the end of the nine-day civil hearing, with Mr Justice Rougier reserving this until the start of the new legal term in September of that year. Being used to waiting, it had been more than 13 years by that point, after all, the family were prepared for this. And on the subject of waiting, we'll pick the tale up immediately after a short word from the show sponsors. This episode is once again brought to you by Best Fiends, the fun and vibrant colourful puzzle strategy game that I'm playing to wind down in my spare moments when I'm not true criming to bring you the show that you're listening to. Whenever I'm taking some time out from researching or writing, I'm proper hooked now on Best Fiends. It appeals to the side of me that likes a challenge and has me thinking a strategic couple of moves ahead. But it's also a casual game that anyone can play and finds you easily wanting to play on through the magical world of minutiae from the green glades to towering treetops, collecting and upgrading little characters such as Temper, Brittle and Buggles, each with their own unique skill that you need and that will help you defeat the slugs on your way to Mount Boom. Best Fiends always has that fresh feel because the game is constantly being updated to bring you new events and challenges, and before you know it, like me, you'll be several levels up, totally hooked and wanting to progress further. It's even the perfect pastime in the times of social distancing that are upon us, as you can play online against friends, keeping you staying in touch and connected in a fun way, or you can enjoy playing it yourself. You don't even need an online connection to enjoy it. So what are you waiting for? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters 
trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5 star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. There was stand-in room only when the day of the civil action judgment came, just over two months later, on Monday the 30th of September 1991, in the very same courtroom the nine-day hearing had been held in. As ever, Flo, Gail and Cynthia were in attendance to hear Mr Justice Rougier in a measured reading of his findings that lasted an hour and twenty minutes, finding favour of the plaintiffs themselves. Going through all of the evidence presented in a clear manner, the judge explained that on the basis of this, there were only two possible scenarios for Lynn's death. Roy Brooks had either killed her by himself, as he had first claimed, or that Michael Brooks held the dominant role in the murder, with Roy being pressured to help him. He then outlined the reasons why he believed the latter to be what had happened. The absence of defensive injuries to Lynn, the testimony of other witnesses that Michael Brooks had admitted to them that he was the killer, and Brooks's habits of stabbing and slashing pictures of women with knives, plus his spoken desire to get women, as had been heard in testimony. Now, because in a civil court the level of proof required is the balance of probability, as opposed to the beyond reasonable doubt, the following words were chosen carefully, but definitely with the judge having applied the highest standard to the evidence, the criteria to a criminal trial. I had to ask myself whether the evidence convinced me that Fitzroy did the killing alone, or if not, whether it convinced me that the real killer was Brooks. My answer to the first question is, certainly not. And my answer to the second question is, yes it has. The second defendant did more than just prick her, the reality is he cannot admit to himself, let alone to me, what he did. I am left in no reasonable doubt that the first defendant killed Lynn Siddons. That is a dreadful judgment to make, but it is, I fear, the consequence of a dreadful crime. Boom. Result. You'll be pleased to know also that Mr Justice Rougier rightfully had very vocal criticism of the shambolic police handling of the entire affair also. Although damages were not assessed at the time of the judgment, Michael Brooks was ruled as being 100% liable for the damages to which Lynn's estate was entitled as a result of the killing and was also ruled 80% liable for the pain and terror inflicted upon Lynn before death with Roy being ruled 20% liable. What an absolute victory for the family that was. A court hearing and ruling confirming what they'd fought for for 13 and a half years, to show that in law, Michael Brooks was responsible for the death of Lynn Siddons as a killer. Following the ruling, Gail said, I cannot believe it, I'm all churned up inside. Yes, we're happy with the verdict, but we would not have had to do all this in the first place if the police had done their job properly. Most of it's down to my mum's determination. She's a great woman. Modest as ever, Flo added. Now I'm happy that we'll have a conviction. I want to see Michael Brooks put in prison for a very long time. 
I was impressed also when I was researching that when the ruling was reported in the Derby Evening Telegraph, the whole of its front page was reserved for an exact reproduction of the writ that I read to you earlier in the episode, underneath the headline, Your Bill, Mr. Brooks. I thought that was great, loved it. Meanwhile, at the same time as Flo and the family were celebrating, 82 miles away from the Royal Courts of Justice, reporters had tracked down Michael Brooks to the council house in Peterborough where he, Dot and Tracy lived, number 128 Howland in the Goldhay district of Peterborough, even though Brooks was attempting anonymity by using the assumed name Michael Goodwood. At first, the Brooks family were downright hostile towards the press, Dot and Tracy chasing one reporter out of the garden by throwing a bucket of water at him and screaming, Piss off, leave us alone. Now a bucket of water might get rid of the Wicked Witch of the West, but it doesn't get rid of a reporter on a decent story though, does it? And once the Brooks family realised that they were there to stay, they acquiesced and began talking to them from the confines of the upstairs bathroom behind a frosted glass window, as Brooks wanted to maintain his anonymity. Now he thought the best way to do this was to even go so far as to give a short television interview with his face pixelated out to Central Television in which he gave his response to the court ruling saying I'm innocent, I always have been and have been saying that for the past 13 years. When the time comes I will clear my name. The witnesses who've been in that court have done nothing but tell lies. I just don't know what I'm going to do. I'm unemployed, I have no money, I've got nothing. The past 13 years of my life have been hell. Certain men have tried to kill me. Every time I go out, I look over my shoulder. Now he wasn't looking over his shoulder enough to let his guard down completely. Long enough for a BBC camera team, encamped in a neighbour's house with zoom lens trained on Brooks's doorstep, to capture Brooks on film leaving the house to mess about with his car. Now if you head over to the episode show notes, there's a link to a documentary concerning the case where he's shown, watch it if anything just to see and hear the characters we've described, especially Flo. These pictures of Michael Brooks appeared all over the television and in the following day's newspapers, so maintaining any anonymity was now as pointless as a wasp and Brooks' response to this was to appear at a press conference the day after the judgment, where his solicitor, Anthony Wharton, read aloud a lengthy statement, Brooks saying nothing, just sitting there with a face like a bloody welder's bench. In part, the statement read, The media should now desist and leave Michael Brooks alone. He is not going to be interviewed at this juncture. If he were he would repeat his denials of his responsibility for this dreadful murder, although I appreciate that such denials would be spitting in the wind in view of the long-standing campaign of public vilification of him. Michael Brooks does not shrink from appearing before the cameras today. Having done so, neither he nor I are prepared to answer any further questions and we ask you to go away, print or broadcast what you feel to be appropriate and then to leave Michael Brooks and his family alone. This was not a criminal trial and in material respects the rules in a civil action are different. Mr Justice Rougier's findings did not amount to a criminal verdict of guilty, although the widespread reports and comment in today's newspapers would have it otherwise. 
it is our view that there were a number of irregularities in the conduct of the plaintiff's case, which are causing us to review the judgment with care, with a view to taking the matter to appeal. We now feel constrained to make some comment because, without it, it has become clear that Michael Brooks and his family will continue to be pursued endlessly for some form of reaction and there will be no peace for them until the media has something. Now it took a couple of months for legality to work out exactly the sum that the Siddonses should be paid in compensation following the ruling and there are strict guidelines laid down for calculating this. It was based on Lynn's earning potential and how much Lynn could have expected to pay whilst living at home during her working life. As she was just about to start a low paid role before she died, so then the damages would be low also based on this formula. We heard the writ set out before, and whilst I will stress again that this campaign was never about any monetary gain for the Siddonses, the family was shocked at the amount awarded when it was announced on the 11th of December 1991. £10,641, the price of a murdered girl's life, with Brooks ordered to pay the majority and Roy to pay just £220. Flo said when the amount was announced, I don't think we'll ever get a penny. Brooks hasn't worked for 15 years because he's got a bad back. We were never in it for the money anyway. All I want is Brooks charged with Lynn's murder. Flo was right because Brooks was so hard up that he could have done with rock bands putting on a bloody show for him. Then asked by a reporter if she could ever consider forgiveness, Flo said, I would never forgive him. You read about people who talk about forgiving, but I couldn't. When I think of what he did to Lynn, for nothing, for fun, it makes me sick. Lynn's not here and he's got away with it. It's bad enough when you don't know who the murderer is, but when you know him, it's such a waste of life. It were the police who messed it up. I'm not saying all policemen are the same. There are some good ones, but there are some who've made a lot of mistakes. If I'd have sat down and thought about how long it would go on, I wouldn't have started. But if I start something, I like to finish it. Perhaps when it's done, Lynn will rest. The family had come too far to give up now. There was that one final hurdle to go. And by that time, Derbyshire Constabulary had come back into their corner. Over the years, Flo had written an amount of letters the size of the Blue Peter postbag to all and sundry, and when a new Chief Constable of Derbyshire Constabulary, John Newin, had been appointed in 1990, as soon as he was in the role, he got a letter also. He was the fifth in that position that she'd written to. But surprise, John Newin did more than send the generic fob-off letter back to her, you know, yeah, the force is doing all it can, blah blah, all this bollocks. He actually went to see Flo because he was concerned that the long-running saga still hadn't been put to bed so many years later. He told her that because a civil case was pending, this is back in 1990, that immediate action couldn't be taken, but he made her a promise that when the civil court action was concluded, then he would do what he could to ensure the case was closed for good. As good as his word, on the day that Mr Justice Rougier announced his judgement, 
As soon as it was heard, Chief Constable Newin arranged for two senior Derbyshire police officers to go once again to the Department of Public Prosecutions with a now-updated police file on the Lynn Siddons murder. He also at a press conference answered criticism of the Derbyshire force, even though he hadn't been involved with the force at the time of the murder, publicly saying, On this occasion, it wasn't up to the normal professional standards you would associate with a murder investigation, or any other criminal investigation for that matter. No, it bloody wasn't, John. Fair play to you for admitting so. So, with the Chief Constable on this side, the updated file on Lynn Siddons following the civil court hearing, and a new Director of Public Prosecutions in place, Barbara Mills QC, maybe, just maybe, it would now be decided there was enough of a strong case for a criminal prosecution of Michael Brooks for the murder of Lynn Siddons. Following a lengthy review, on the 7th of July 1992, Derbyshire Police Officers Detective Sergeant Phil Hartley and Detective Constable Ian Penman, accompanied by two other detectives and two carloads of drug squad officers, knocked at the door of number 128 Howland in Goldhay, where the door was answered by Dot Brooks's mother. After the two detectives identified themselves, they were allowed in and made their way immediately to the front room, where Michael Brooks and Dot were sat watching television. The colour drained from Brooks's face and he was left speechless, as Detective Sergeant Hartley told him he was being arrested for the murder of Lynn Siddons before cautioning him. Dot Brooks, however, was nothing of the sort. He didn't do it, you bastards. Fuck off out of it and leave us alone, was what Dot came out with. After changing his clothes, Brooks was taken to Full Street Police Station in Derby, whilst the search team, meanwhile, moved into 128 Howland and came out with a whole plethora of items, including knives, clothing, a paperback book about the Yorkshire Ripper case, and a bag full of press cuttings about the murder of Lynn Siddons. The following day, Brooks appeared before Derby magistrates charged with Lynn's murder and was remanded to Leicester Prison, where it was reported that five days after being remanded, he had adapted a hunger strike. Dot is recorded as saying, All he's having is fluids and the doctor makes him take tablets. We were assured Mick would be separated from the other prisoners, but he's in a cell with five other men. The other prisoners won't talk to him and he's too scared to sleep. My heart bleeds. I am proper absolutely crushed for you there, Mick. Yet, even though the saga had got this far, it was to be four years after this arrest that the trial of Michael Brooks for the murder of Lynn Siddons finally got underway. His legal counsel had applied for a stay of the legal process against him based on the length of time since the murder, it being claimed witnesses' memories would have faded, making any testimony unreliable, and the vast amount of publicity the case had generated up to that point would make it impossible for any trial to be fair. A stipendary magistrate from Birmingham, Michael James, had been brought in to oversee these arguments and ruled against both, claiming basically, you don't forget events to do with something as serious as murder and a judge can always direct jurors to put anything they've read about a case out of their mind. 
There were other appeals tried to contest this decision, and these things of course drag on and on, so it was almost two years after he'd been arrested and charged, on the 20th of June 1994, that committal proceedings even began. Now Brooks wasn't there in court to hear these, he'd been medically excused by a doctor who diagnosed him as suffering from stress, and he wasn't even in prison at the time. Brooks had shortly after being charged been bailed to a hostel in Cumbria whilst appeals were ongoing, with strict conditions not to step outside the county unless attending court, and had even by that time been allocated a council property in Carlisle so that Doc could move up there to be with him. Then there was yet another delay when Roy Brooks then refused to allow records of conversations with his solicitors to be disclosed to the court. The appeals for this went right the way up as far as the House of Lords, who decided for him, and they were not released. But by the 21st of August 1995, all appeals and delays had run out, the committal had gone ahead, and Michael Brooks was facing trial for the murder of Lynn Siddons. Ten months later, on the 17th of June 1996, Brooks went on trial at the Old Bailey in London, where his past came back to haunt him. By now bearded, suited, but still looking like he'd been dressed in the dark by Steptoe, he opted not to give evidence on his own behalf. His counsel, Jonathan Goldberg QC, describing him to the court beforehand as, I quote, a depressed, moronic, shambling figure that a psychiatrist had declared unfit to speak. Cheers for that, defence counsel, eh? This was contested by the prosecution and a second doctor they counterproduced claimed that Brooks was indeed fit, although ultimately he was not called to testify on his own behalf and did not appear in the dock. Mr Goldberg told the court how the defendant had served a sentence of his own since the killing. He'd moved residences 14 times in 18 years because of harassment from the media and the victim's family and was now a virtual recluse suffering deep anxiety and panic attacks. He spent his days alone watching television and videos, too afraid to leave the house for fear of reprisals, enduring a friendless and nomadic existence, Mr Goldberg said. He went on, This man's life has been that of a prisoner for the last 18 years. Brooks has lived an almost friendless existence, never going out, just watching TV and videos. The passage of 18 years is practically a life sentence. Over the six-week trial, much of the evidence heard was a repeat of earlier hearings we've already heard about. Pathologist Dr. Usher appeared to testify as to the wounds Lynn had suffered, and that he was of the opinion that Roy Brooks's statement where he'd implicated Michael Brooks would be consistent with the findings at post-mortem, even down to Brooks being left-handed which tied in nicely with the wounds that, in his opinion, had been caused by a left-hander. Various police officers who'd been involved with the case testified, witnesses that we've heard of that Michael Brooks admitted the killing to, including Keith Hibbert and Shane Morley, pretty much everything that we've heard in the episodes to date was presented over the course of the trial, and that it's pointless going back over now. But it is worth mentioning that this was the first time that Brooks for more than 10 years, had been in a courtroom with Flo, ever since Cynthia's driving escapade more than a decade earlier. So vocal through the six-week trial was Flo in her contempt, sat so near to the man she despised with all her soul, 
that no one representing Brooks was safe from her wrath to the point where an usher was deputed to sit with her to keep her in order. Flo is amazing, isn't she? Once again, star witness for the prosecution was Roy Brooks, who stuck to the story that he'd given at his own trial 18 years earlier. He described the killing exactly as he'd done in 1978 and refused to be swayed, despite cross-examination by Mr Goldberg suggesting that he'd invented everything to escape justice, had killed Lynn in a state of sexual frenzy or because she'd racially abused him, and he had in fact gotten clean away with murder. Roy denied it all firmly and told the court the same story that he'd told in 1978. And as we know, the medical evidence, subsequent witness statements, physical evidence and the character of Michael Brooks all supported this. At the conclusion of the evidence and following the closing speeches from both counsels, Mr Justice Mitchell took three days himself to sum up the case stressing to the jury that he understood the difficulty they had in deciding in his meticulously fair direction before on the 31st of July 1996 the jury retired to consider their verdict. After 8 hours and 51 minutes deliberation they returned to court number 2 of the Old Bailey having decided Michael Brooks's fate with a majority verdict of 10 to 2. Guilty of the murder of Lynn Siddons. 51 year old Brooks said nothing but visibly slumped in the dock as he heard his fate. He was of course sentenced to mandatory life imprisonment, being told that he would serve a minimum term of 26 years. It was the fate that he'd escaped for more than 18 years since he tried to get his stepson to accept the entire blame for the murder and the fate that the Siddons family had fought so hard to bring upon him. Flo closed her eyes when she heard the verdict, and beside her, Lynn's mum Gail threw back her head and gasped with relief. You couldn't even imagine such a surreal feeling for them, could you? Afterwards, Flo said, Before the verdict, we went to St Paul's Cathedral and lit a candle for Lynn. Now our prayers have been answered. At last, after all these years, we have justice. That's all we ever wanted for Lynn. Derbyshire Police Chief Constable John Newin, also speaking after the verdict, said he was personally pleased a decision had been reached. He said, I would like to pay tribute to Lynn's family. Her grandmother Flo's courage and commitment have been remarkable. Without her, it's unlikely this matter would have been brought before an Old Bailey jury. Justice has finally been done. The tragedy is, is that nothing is going to bring Lynn back. Michael Brooks's solicitor, Peter Kilty, meanwhile, said that he planned to appeal against his conviction, telling the press, My client maintains his innocence. We are frankly surprised by the verdict. The judge emphasised time and time again in his summing up the extraordinary flaws in the evidence and how cautious the jury should be in accepting it. Now Brooks did appeal the verdict. It took two years for the appeal against his conviction to be heard, and on Thursday the 8th of October 1998, Flo, Gail and Cynthia were once again down in London at the Court of Appeal to hear the decision given at a hearing chaired by Lord Chief Justice Lord Bingham, sitting with Mr Justice Tucker and Mr Justice Richards. 
The grounds for the appeal, Brooks's counsel Michael Shorrock QC argued, was that Brooks had not received a fair trial due to the intense media coverage of the case over the preceding years before he appeared in court. Had police charged Brooks with the murder within a reasonable time frame, then there would have been no adverse publicity, arguing that the civil proceedings would have been placed under reporting restrictions pending the result of the criminal trial. However, Lord Bingham said, This is the archetypal case in which the court should entertain a lurking doubt about the safety of the conviction. Having considered this whole case with great care, we don't find ourselves in doubt about the safety of this conviction, and it therefore follows that we have to dismiss this appeal. Get used to that porridge, dickhead. After the ruling, Gale said, We're really pleased because he would have been a free man if he'd won the appeal. Now he must serve his sentence. He deserved what he got. Flo added, We've been going for 20 years now and I'm very pleased with the result. All I ever wanted was justice for Lynn. It's what's kept me alive. Lynn was a lovely, pretty girl full of hope. She was murdered and no one was being punished for it. That was wrong and we were not going to let him get away with it. I never, never gave up hope. After every setback, I just sat down and thought about the next step. But I never dreamed it would take so long. Michael Brooks remains a serving prisoner to this day. If he serves solely his recommended tariff, he could be scheduled for release in just two years' time in 2022 when he will be 77 years of age. So what of Lynn's killer? Who exactly was Michael Brooks? Now little is revealed about Brooks through research that I've done for the story arc and what little there is reveals the best part of bugger all about him. Born in 1945 in Derby, Michael Richard Brooks was the youngest of three sons of the respectable Brooks family alongside his older brothers Bernard and Bob. There are no reports about Brooks's schooling or indeed very little about his childhood apart from witnesses who were to later give statements about him and appear at his trial who told of him being, I quote, a weird, disturbed child with a fascination from knives from an early age. One childhood friend, as you recall, Keith Hibbert, told how Brooks always had several of these as a youngster and was forever stabbing or hacking at things, moving on from bits of wooden rope to at least on one occasion offering Keith a carving knife to stab him with, wanting to experience this sensation of a stab wound for himself. Several people testified as to how Brooks had a dartboard that he would affix pornographic pictures of women to and continually throw darts at, exclaiming, got her, or words to that effect, when a dart struck the genitalia or breasts of the woman in the picture. Indeed, eh? I don't think he made it ever as far as the lakeside, but I digress. There are also tales of Brooks's fascination with blood and the suggestion he possibly deliberately self-harmed over time to satisfy this curiosity, as well as attempting suicide on at least two known occasions in his life, once trying to gas himself and the second attempt being an overdose, after which he voluntarily committed himself to Derby's Kingsway Hospital as an inpatient although exactly when this was and for what length of time is unknown. Now for somebody who sounds and looks as appealing as learning about the history of concrete does, Brooks seemed to have no shortage of girlfriends as a youngster, 
but this behaviour with knives was omnipresent also still as he got older. Think back to the testimony that Roland Cooper gave at his trial, and he's already known Mr Darcy, is he? So then, after a string of short relationships, at age 19 he met the woman who was to become the most constant figure in his life, Dorothy, herself just barely 17 years of age and mother to a two-year-old child, Roy, from a previous relationship with a Dominican man. The two married on the 19th of February 1965 after a six-month courtship and for a while lived with Dot's parents in Derby, the only place they could go as relations between Michael and his brothers and stepfather had broken down at the time to the point where neither of the former wanted anything to do with him and his stepfather wouldn't allow him in the house, collectively thinking him a never-do-well and a workshy fop. Indeed, the only form of employment Brooks is ever reported as undertaking is in a manual role such as periodic minicab driving or window cleaning. Shortly afterwards, as Dot was to say in her statement, the weird behaviour with knives in their sexy times began. When they were to eventually move out of Dot's parents, the three lived in a succession of bedsit and flat accommodation before moving up to the North Wales coast in the early 1970s living first in the town of Abergelly before moving on to Rill, which, like Cher, hasn't been fucking sunny in years either, and the sun centre there undoubtedly still had the same water in at the time. However, a move up to Rill wasn't the dream move and new start that the Brookses had hoped for. By that time, there were four of them. Daughter Tracy had been born in 1971. Michael Brooks still did not work, and Roy had developed problems in school. As we said, he was illiterate and this educational setback wasn't helped with the racial abuse he got in school that he began coming home with tales of that Roy claimed came from pupils and teachers alike. On one occasion, a teacher is alleged to have made a racial slur to Roy by saying, and as for this little monkey, he ought to get back to the trees where he belongs. The family also suffered abuse at home like this too. Their house was egged on numerous occasions, windows were smashed, and disgustingly, racially abusive slogans were painted on the doors of their house, telling them to go home. Police would also turn up at all hours, reportedly having been informed of assaults happening at the property or instances of drug use. Now there's no record of any arrests for Michael Brooks over any of these claims, and indeed Brooks was later to claim that they were all unfounded, the family merely being singled out for harassment by bigoted locals. Further, he was to claim that he made several complaints to both the police and as high up as the Race Relations Board over this abuse and harassment, but these went nowhere. Bad times in the early 1970s, and after three years of this attempted new life in North Wales, the family headed back to Derby, living for a period in a shelter hostel, even sleeping rough for a time also, before in 1976 they were finally allocated a council property, number 27 Carlisle Street. 27 Carlisle Street soon became a standout house in the row, as I said in the first episode of the arc. When the Brooks family moved in, it soon became dilapidated and looked like a rotten tooth in a clean mouth of choppers overrun with Alsatian dogs and where the Brooks family would spend most of their time indoors. Never working, aside from periodic instances where he would drive a minicab, when the six-foot-plus hulking, shambling, scruffy figure of Brooks wasn't out with his dogs rabbiting around the Sinfin area, 
an unmistakable sight. While we've heard about his antics at home, playing his loud records constantly, chucking knives at stuck-up pictures from porn mags, and getting himself off by jabbing his wife with his thumb, or pretending he was cutting his wife's head off during sex. If it wasn't this, then it was obsessing over things like Jack the Ripper, and on the rare occasions that the family went out, money allowing, it was spent going to watch delightful films such as Cannibal Holocaust. Now films such as this couldn't just be left on the screen either. Brooks would come home and obsessively pore over the details that he'd seen depicted, going on and on about them, almost reliving the mutilation in his mind. Then, replacement pictures cut out from pornographic magazines, or pictures of women in underclothes from catalogues would be plastered up all over the fireplace, and the stabbing and slashing of them would intensify, the all ending up heavily mutilated with stab wounds down the front, some slit from throat to stomach, or the toy dolphin would cop it. If you were ever challenged about this, and you would do, wouldn't you? You'd ask him, what are you doing that for? As we've heard, Brooks would reply, you shouldn't be so fucking nosy. As long as it's not you, you have nothing to worry about. Not the most inviting sounding household, is it? Who goes around to a house where there are jazz mag pictures up on the wall in the front room, eh? Yet number 27, as we've said, became a popular household. As we've heard, the family befriended a succession of teenage girls from the Sinfin area, who were most likely attracted there because they saw the older Dot as a cool adult to hang out with who treated them like adults. And it was in January 1978 that Lynn and her friend Pam became regular callers there. Now it's reported that for however the popular the house was, and Dot was, Michael Brooks wasn't so. The consensus was that he was considered creepy and not particularly likeable or trustworthy. You think? However, despite thinking this, the polite and friendly Lynn would still pass the time and acknowledge him, as it was how she'd been raised, and she was friendly with Roy and Dot. In fact, so friendly with them was she, that during her trip to Milan, she'd even bought the Brooks's household gifts upon her return, cigarettes for the adults, a doll for Tracy, and a pack of card games for Roy. They'd briefly played one of these games, Old Maid, on the Sunday when Lynn called around to drop the gifts off following her return, and as soon as she'd gone, Brooks shot Roy a knowing look and told him that tomorrow he would have to go looking around farms, to which Roy agreed, knowing exactly what it meant. It had been discussed before. As Lynn's friend, Roy had previously mentioned to her the possibility of working on a local farm, claiming that Brooks had told him that local farmers were hiring at the time and she had agreed to accompany him, perhaps feeling sorry for the vulnerable youth, who although he was just a year her junior, she looked on as a child. She'd even mentioned this farm work to Flo on their Milan holiday. Yet no farmers were hiring in the area. What would be the point? That April was still so cold, the ground was still frozen. It was merely a ruse concocted by Michael Brooks for Roy to lure someone to a remote place for them to kill. Now whether it had specifically been decided that it had to be Lynn, something about her appealing to Brooks's warped sexual desires, or whether Roy had already mentioned this to several others as bait and Lynn was just the unfortunate person selected that day, no one but Michael and Roy Brooks will ever know. What we do know is that Michael Brooks persuaded Roy to take the sole fall for the crime, 
so unconcerned about anyone bar himself that he told Roy to claim that Lynn had molested him and called him a black bastard, something categorically so far from her character to have done that it was obscene to even suggest. And Roy did, so Brooks remained free, even though his guilt was known and all but recognised by the law following Roy's trial and acquittal. You and I know that's not right. Lynn's family knew it wasn't right, so although it took them 18 years and it truly was the fight of their lives, they made it right. They eventually got justice for Lynn. In the years following Brooks's conviction and imprisonment and his failed appeal against conviction, the case of Lynn Siddons has cropped up periodically again in the news, ranging from 1999 when it was reported that Flo had accepted an ex-gratia compensation payment from Derbyshire Police, a five-figure sum believed to be £10,000, over their admittance of their mishandling of the investigation, to as late on as 2017 when solicitor Stephen Chittenden, who'd represented Roy Brooks back in 1978, made the news. Stephen had retired as a practising solicitor the previous year, and had given an interview to his local newspaper following his retirement, in which he admitted that back in 1979, he had released confidential papers concerning the case to a law firm being instructed by the Siddons family, containing information from Roy about how scared he was of his stepfather, and his behaviour with knives, Stephen knowing, like so many others, that it was obvious who the driving force behind the murder was. Now although Stephen was professionally bound not to have disclosed this information, he'd handed it over in 1979 after he was approached by Philip Whitehead and asked if he could help the family. No complaint had ever been raised about him doing this from Roy or any of the Brooks family at any time, but following his admittance when the interview with his local paper was published in 2016, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority launched an investigation. Stephen admitted his wrongdoing 37 years after the act and was formally rebuked by the SRA and ordered to pay costs of £650. He also agreed to remove his name from the official role of solicitors to avoid being struck off which would have been a sadder end to a career that had otherwise been untarnished. Yet Stephen remains convinced that whilst what he did was unprofessional, it was morally right. He said, The SRA wanted to find me £2,000. I pointed out that I was a young man under pressure from an MP, and I couldn't have lived with myself if Michael Brooks had done something to somebody else. My mind said to me, You have to do this but I was risking being struck off as a lawyer if it ever came out that I'd handed over my documents. My wife backed me, it could have lost me my career, but I'm proud of what I did. The ripples of Michael Brooks's evil spread far and wide, don't they? Still today, each year on the anniversary of her death or her birthday, Loving tributes to Lynn fill the in-memoriam personal columns of the local Derby newspapers, sent in without fail by Flo, Gail, Cynthia, Lynn's uncles Barry and Keith and their families, the cousins, half-brothers and sisters that Lynn never got to meet. Each of them is touchingly worded, and through reading each of them, when you read them, you can truly feel the loss that still exists within the family even now, more than 42 years later.
An example of one such message is as follows. Treasured memories of dearest Lynn, aged 16 years, brutally killed April 3rd, found April 9th, 1978. If only I could have been at your side to comfort and say a last farewell. The evil of some bring heartache to so many. All I wish it was only a dream and you would come smiling home. We will never forget you, your ever sorrowing ma'am. God bless. There are no words really, are there? No words. Since her death, the Siddons family have also always regularly visited the spot where Lynn lost her life, laying flowers at the scene at least three times each year, something that must have always been so difficult to do. Of course, over the passage of the 42 years since the murder, today the scene between bridges 15 and 16 on the pathway beside the Trent and Mersey Canal looks markedly different from the photograph that I shared on the show's Instagram page some weeks ago. But you can only imagine how it must have felt for the family before it was being in such a place. Indeed, Lynn's mother Gail said, It used to be creepy bringing flowers down here. It was eerie. But now that it's been cleared, it just seems more peaceful and serene down here. Because, in July 2003, British Waterways had tidied the spot up and arranged a more permanent, lasting tribute to Lynn. A memorial plaque on a post was erected at the spot where she was murdered and was unveiled that month by the Siddons family. The plaque reads, In loving memory of Lynn Siddons, 16 years old, Tragically killed April the 3rd, 1978. Deep in our heart you will stay, loved and remembered every day. I'm sure you can imagine who was pictured unveiling it as well, can't you? The plaque was somewhere I wanted to visit myself during research in the Ark, but of course, it's difficult to do in the current climate. I will go at some point, and when I do, I'll lay flowers there also, complete with a card addressed to two people. To Lynn, the focus of the entire tale, but also to Flo, its figurehead, for Flo sadly passed away aged 92 on the 1st of January 2007. She'd spent her final years in a Derby nursing home and passed away peacefully on New Year's Day in the Royal Derby Hospital, the grandmother of 12's packed funeral, because I'm sure you can imagine that it was, wasn't it? being held nine days later on Wednesday, January the 10th at Derby's St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church. Following Flo's passing, the children paid loving tribute to her, with her daughter Cynthia saying, she was a fun-loving woman, but she would fight for her family. Gail added, it was a long, hard fight, but my mum was always there at the front. It was tiring and we sometimes wondered if we'd ever reach our goal, but we did it in the end. We want to pay tribute to her for all that she achieved. She was such a lovely person, and I'm so glad that she belonged to us. I mean, no doubt that you are. Anyone would be for such an amazing lady, wouldn't they? Isn't the tale of a family's fight a remarkable story, and can you see why it's one that you couldn't skim over in a single episode? I hope now that you've heard all four parts of it, which I'll put together in one big episode, and yes, I know I still need to do that with Maniac. Then you'll remember what I said when I was introducing the tale back in part one, that it would send you through a whole manner of emotion, sadness, fury, disgust, just to name a couple. But I wanted you to be left equally with a sense of admiration. 
because that's my initial reaction every time I think of the Siddons family. I mean, to campaign so tirelessly for justice that should surely have come many years before it did, at such time and expense, only to be knocked down countlessly with doors closing time and again on them over the years, the absolute shambles of Derbyshire police and how they were with them, and to each time get back up, dust off and carry on the fight, no matter how hard it must have been. Miraculous, nothing short of an absolute inspiration. Now I mean that across the whole family, even though Keith or Barry Siddons and their families have hardly been mentioned throughout the tale, I haven't meant for a moment to forget them or to not credit them, they were in the thick of it also. But the figureheads have always been the women of the family, Gail, Lynn's biological mother, always dignified whenever in the public eye, despite the obvious pain she must have felt. Cynthia, the fiery one, so consumed with the cause and eaten up with her hatred of Brooks, that she would regularly put his windows through, and even drove a car at them, which I thought was ace, by the way. And of course, and this has been as much her story as Lynn's in some way, you've got Flo, and all you can say there really, is what an incredible woman that was. I've seen some comments that echoed the same thing there, and couldn't everybody do with a flow in their life? The exact type of person you'd want in your corner. Dignified, yet with some of the steeliest determination I've ever come across. Flo is now sadly long since passed away, but I can imagine, and I'd like to think so anyway, that she took some comfort in her final years knowing that something she'd worked so tirelessly for, something that had driven her, eventually came to fruition and ensured that a beast such as Michael Brooks paid for his crime, however many years down the line. Michael Brooks, where do you start with someone like that, eh? Testimony after testimony shows of his long obsession with wanting to cause women harm, a burning desire to stab and mutilate them. Yet as far as we know, although it's suggested that he'd had previous scrapes with the law in his life, plus a history of mental illness, there's no suggestion that any of these past offences involved violence or were sex crimes. Any of this, if it's to be believed, was kept at bay until 1978, when he urged his stepson to lure Lynn Siddons to her death. But had Brooks attacked, or perhaps even killed, before Lynn? For someone to display the deviance Brooks did, this long-held obsession with knives and stabbing and the weird stab emotions during sex that were described as occurring from shortly after their marriage by Dot, for such a long time, and not act upon it at all before 1978 in a sex crime, seems to me difficult to believe. It's never been reported that police have looked at him in connection with crimes before 1978, but if it was Derbyshire police doing so, then Michael Brooks has probably already been enough of an albatross to them over the years as it is, and perhaps they wouldn't look as hard at him. It is likely that after 1978, because Brooks was being so watched by the Siddons family, and so much in the public eye, that this scrutiny likely saved someone else from being attacked, possibly killed. Because someone so dangerous and remorseless as Brooks that they barefaced lie on television, in the press, even in the face of such overwhelming evidence suggesting their culpability, would undoubtedly have attacked or killed again had they been able to. Brooks is a monstrously evil killer who deserves every second of his imprisonment, 
and the thought of him being eligible for release in just two years' time, well, it just doesn't seem right, does it? Roy Brooks also have mixed feelings about him. Undoubtedly, the home life for the Brooks family wasn't idyllic, to say the least. The constant poverty, periods of homelessness, add to that Roy's inability to read and write and his underdeveloped form making him a vulnerable figure, as well as the described racial abuse that he put up with in school, and it doesn't seem much of a happy existence, does it? And there was no respite from her at home, really. This abuse even extended to there. We've heard of how Dot Brooks used to refer to him as, I quote, my little chocolate soldier, and Michael Brooks saying things like, He's like all the blacks, he's got no guts. Now if you're in the kind of household where vile stuff like that is bandied around and you can't even escape slurs at home, then you're going to have problems. I've got sympathy for someone in that situation because it's just vile, isn't it? But even though much is made of Michael Brooks' dominance over his stepson and Roy undoubtedly feared him, the fact of the matter is, it's accepted that Roy deliberately lured Lynn to that canal towpath, regardless of whether he knew or not how far things would actually go. He still lured her there knowing that nothing good was going to happen, didn't he? And however under duress he was, he still struck Lynn with a knife several times and watched as Brooks butchered her, forced soil into her mouth and her head underwater, then acted normal and even went out with a picture of Lynn throughout the following week, to me, he has culpability in the crime the same as Michael Brooks does, yet he was acquitted. Today, Roy Brooks will be approaching 60 years of age and may even have children of his own, should he of course still be alive. If so, then he must deservedly live still with the role he played in causing a family to lose one of their own in such horrific circumstances. And the same goes for Dot Brooks also, should she still be alive, because she'll be quite advanced in years now, and has to live with the knowledge that she harboured a killer for many years, not only taking him back, but staying with him. Why? Out of fear? Or was he that much under his skin that she even forgave him his crimes? And Derbyshire Police, where do you even begin with their catalogue of mistakes throughout the investigation? At the beginning, that's where. More should have surely have been made of Lynn's disappearance when it was reported, and her not treated as merely a runaway. Perhaps then she may have been found sooner than she was. Then there's the arrest of Roy Brooks, and allowing Michael Brooks ten minutes unsupervised to talk with him at the police station, in which time he got him to confess and take the full blame. I mean, that categorically shouldn't happen, should it? Having done that, they then took down a confession running to merely two-thirds of a page of paper, when any confession should be lengthy and it should contain facts within it that have been wrung from the suspect to verify the claims within, not some half-arsed account like that. There was the rush to not look any closer or further than this and to charge Roy, when forensic evidence would have suggested Lynn's cause of death as being strangulation, which alongside the knife wounds to her body of differing severity and depth, plus some suggesting a left-hander, plus Roy had never mentioned it, would have suggested more than one killer. There is also the complete lack of carrying out a full search of number 27 Carlisle Street looking for a murder weapon that they hadn't found, including digging up the rear garden, which would have revealed a knife and burned clothing. There's their lack of obtaining witness statements from important figures such as Bob Brooks, 
and their complete disinterest in and failure to send a representative to Lynn's funeral. Then there's the fact of them losing, I say that questionably, the knife and clothing subsequently found once the Brooks family had moved, and there is their refusal to release the 1985 report and to act upon the recommendation of an outside force reinvestigating the crime. Things did improve from 1990 upon the arrival of John Newell as Derbyshire Chief Constable, and indeed, if you check out the documentary in the episode show notes, as I said before, you hear him talking, and I do believe that there is sincerity there, even though it's a bit of a politician's answer. Fair play to him though for stepping up and admitting what five others before him hadn't, the Derbyshire police had been shoddy. So it's quite a tale in all, isn't it, a family's fight? And it's certainly one that I'd love reading your thoughts upon, as well as discussing with you when I come to recap it on the Patreon live stream that's coming up soon. I'll put details out as to a day and time for that shortly. You can hear your thoughts, should you wish to, on the episode thread on the show's Facebook discussion group page, or if you want to get in touch and discuss with me, then through any of the show's social media links is always fine to do so. You know me, I'll chat happily wherever with you guys. I hope that the tale is one that you've found both interesting and informative. A very emotive story overall, I've thought. There are proper bits in it that knock your heart to the floor, but also parts of it where you root for the family and you almost share in the highs and lows. It's how I felt anyway. And once again, I hope now you understand at the start when I said I hoped you'd be left with a sense of admiration at the conclusion of it. As much as you remember the monster that is Michael Brooks and his nemesis Flo because she's unforgettable, remember Lynn also though, the omnipresent character in the tale. With that, it's proper wrap-up time for the arc and I'm having a week's break between releases now, so I shall be back in two weeks' time with a brand new enthusiast. I look forward to you joining me for that. I thank you very much for joining me here today and for the past few episodes that have made up Lynn's story. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing all of you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you real soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now. <laughs>